All right, well, we are in the fifth, the fifth installment of our series on the book of Esther, entitled Esther, God's Perfect Work Through Imperfect People. And so I'm excited about tonight because we're going to see some character change. Let, let, me, let me just give you a, a, a brief rundown of what we've covered so far, especially if you've not been a part of it. In the very first chapter, the first words of this story called Esther, we meet Xerxes the Great. He's the first character we meet. And Xerxes the Great is, just as he sounds, he's the great. We still know him as Xerxes the Great. He ruled the world. He is a God. He believes he's a God. They believed he's a God. And he has this party to end all parties. It's 187 days of drunkenness, open bar, open buffet, open harem of women. It is just the nastiest hedonistic thing you can imagine. And there's no rules. Well, there's one rule at this party. And the rule at this party is literally there are no rules. It's the very last line we see in chapter one. You can drink as much as you want and you can do whatever you want. There's no compulsion. And so at this party, he gets this great idea to bring his wife in. Her name is Vashti, Queen Vashti. And he wants her to parade in front of all his drunken soldier friends with wearing nothing but her crown. Commentators think that she's wearing nothing. He wants her to come in wearing nothing but her crown. And she refuses. And so that's the end of scene one. And then scene two, we meet Esther, and we, we know only a little bit about her. She has two names. Her first name is Hadassah. It's Hebrew. It means righteous one. We named our daughter Hadassah after that name. And her second name is Esther. It's Persian. It means hidden one. The only other thing we know about her is she's pretty, and she has a figure that's nice to look at. I don't know why I did that. That's not a nice looking <laughs> figure. You can just do your own kind of figure that's nice to look at. And, and Xerxes needs to replace the queen, queen so that he comes up with this great idea to have a television reality tev television program called The Bachelor Persia. And so they get a, all these virgins to come in and he gets one every night and he gets to try them out one night with the king and gets to choose his next queen. And Esther, because she's got that form that's nice to look at, she gets drafted into the Persian version of Bachelor and she quickly rises to the top. The Bible says that she is, um, she finds favor in everyone's eyes and she does everything that the eunuch tells her to do. And she goes into the king's room on her one night. We don't know what she does in there. We don't know what happens. I'm going to try not to imagine. And then she comes out with a crown on her head. She wins. And then they have a wedding and it's a beautiful wedding and it's a banquet called Esther's Banquet and it's beautiful. And without even skipping a beat, without even changing the scene in the very next verse we see. And at that time, Xerxes collected virgins for himself a second time. So it's as if he's playing the bachelor version of Persia, the Persian version of bachelor for a second time. Xerxes is like, I got a queen, but you know what? That was fun. Let's keep doing that. And so while he's doing that, Mordecai, that's the next character we meet, he is an official. He's at the city gate. He overhears these two guys wanting to kill the king. And so he goes back, tells Esther, Esther tells her new husband, Xerxes. Xerxes hires the FBI, finds out it's true, kills those guys in the town square. Mordecai gets his name written in the king's annuals. Gets the, in, get, gets, he gets in the history books, the king's chronicles. End of scene two. Isn't that interesting? Scene three. We did this last week. Scene three, we introduced to a, another character, and his name is Haman. 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 <laughs> Just sounds like a bad guy, doesn't it? Sounds like a heinous, 
bad guy, Satan. He sounds like Satan. Haman, he's a bad guy. His name is Haman the Agagite. And he's an enemy to the Jews. All Agagites are enemies to the Jews. It goes back to King Agag, back to the Amalekites. I don't have time to unpack all that, but just Google it. It's fun stuff. He's an enemy of the Jews. In chapter 3, scene 3, Xerxes promotes Haman. Well, I thought Mordecai should be promoted, don't you? He, he saved the king's life, but no, he doesn't get anything. Haman gets promoted, and Xerxes makes a rule. Anyone who is in front of Haman must salute, must salute. You know what this is, right? Must bow, must pay homage, must pay respect to Haman. This is not worship. This is not paying tribute. This is just paying homage. And Mordecai refuses to do it. I ain't going to pay homage to that man. And so he burns in Haman's heart and Haman wants to kill him. But Haman also wants to kill all of Mordecai's people, which are the Jews. And so he comes up with this great plan. He tells Xerxes, there's these religious nuts out there, a certain kind of people. He doesn't say Jews. He just says a certain kind of people. They don't obey your commands specifically to pay homage to me. And so we shouldn't tolerate them. Let's kill them. And if you let me kill them, I'll take their stuff and give it to you so you can fill your coffers. Xerxes says, sounds like a good idea. Let's write the contract. They write the contract. They send a postcard out to the known world. Xerxes invented the U.S. postal system, by the way. Xerxes' motto is the USA's motto today. We stole it from Xerxes. And he gets this letter out to all of the world and says, on this specific day, that is the day of Passover, you can go to your neighbor's house and kill the Jew and take his TV <laughs> and it's yours. And then the scene ends last week with Xerxes and Haman sitting down and having a drink, celebrating their business adventure. We're going to make a lot of money. Let's drink to that. It's mad men. And they drink. And then it says, and the city of Susa was confused, utter confusion. We talked about this last week. Why was the city confused? Well, they're confused because they don't want to. Why would we kill our Jewish neighbors? Those are good guys. David, Miriam, I like those people. They're, you know, without them, our community wouldn't be the same. And we asked ourselves, would it be the same for us today if someone said, let's kill the Christians and take their TVs <laughs> and their Apple's computers? Would they say, yeah, let's kill them? Or would they say, no, 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 those Christians are good guys. We need them in our community. And so we all committed last week to, to write down three things that we were going to do to our neighbors or three neighbors that we were going to bless this week. And I want to remind you that was your homework assignment last week. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to convict you, but I want you to be convicted if you didn't do it and do it this week, okay? Go and bless your neighbors. You got three neighbors at least, go bless them. And that puts us where we are today, chapter four. Are you ready? This is like a TV miniseries. It just gets better and better and better. I love this story. All right, so let me tell you something about stories. Every story, whether it be a movie you watch or a book you read, has what we call a character arc. Anyone know what a character arc is? A character arc is when you have, a, you know what a character arc is, right? Character arc is when you have a character in the beginning of the story acts and thinks and does one thing, but then through the course of the story, he changes and he and now at the end of the story is saying and doing and acting in a different way. The story is really about the main character going through this arc where he changes. One, one scholar called Wikipedia says this is what the, 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 the character arc is. It's the status of the character as it unfolds throughout the story. Characters begin the story with a certain viewpoint, and through the events in the story, that viewpoint changes. A character arc generally only affects the main character in the story. So if you want to know who the main character is, ask yourself, who's the one changing the most? 
another great scholar by the name of E.M. Forrester. He says there's two kinds of characters in a story. There's flat characters and round characters, if you will. <laughs> a flat character is two-dimensional in that they are relatively uncomplicated and they do not change throughout the course of the work. So a flat character doesn't change. They have a personality and, we, and, they're, and they're predictable. They always make the same mistakes. They always do the same things. You've seen movies like this, right? The guy's always clumsy and he's always messing it up. Um, in our story, in Esther, Haman and Xerxes are flat characters. They never change. Xerxes is always going to see himself as the god who rules the world, and he's a womanizer. In fact, historically, in real life, Herodias, who wrote about Xerxes' life, says that he spent the last 15 years of his life doing nothing but sleeping with his harem. He just, that's, that's his personality. He never changes. He dies that way. Haman, same thing. He's a bad guy. All he wants to do is kill the Jews. He stays that way until he dies, and he'll die soon in this series. Are you excited? You shouldn't be excited. <laughs> okay, so character changes. A round character is complex and undergoes development, sometimes sufficient development in order to surprise the reader. So a round character, or we might call it a dynamic character, completely changes through the story. Or else, it's not a story. You can't watch a story and watch no one change and say, oh, cool, it wasn't even a story. Now, I don't know if you're understanding it, you know, because I'm not an English literature teacher. So let me just give you some prime examples that I think might help. Maybe some films. One of the films that I think revolutionized and changed my generation is this film here. The Terminator. I don't know if you remember the movie, The Terminator. It is, our, our world would not be the same without that movie. I'll tell you that. Uh, if you've not seen it, I'll tell you about it. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. And he is a robot from the future. And he's sent back to 1980 where he wants to kill this girl named Sarah Connor. Because Sarah Connor one day is going to give birth to a child. And she shall call him, I forget what his name is. But, but, but he's going to, what's his name? John. John Connor, thank you. And he is going to one day destroy the future robot army. And so they're trying to kill him before he's even conceived. Now, when Arnold Schwarzenegger goes back to 1980, Sarah Connor is the 80s typified. She's got hot pink pants, bobby socks. Look at that hairdo, you know, this layered, I don't know what you call that if you're a girl. It's, I call it layered, puffy hair. And she's got a puffy face and puffy cheeks, and she's, this is what she likes to do. She likes to go jogging with her Walkman, and she likes to go to discotheques and dance to techno music. In fact, there's a scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger busts into the tech discotheque and start shooting things and all she can do is scream like a girl and run and hide through the whole movie but then chapter two called terminator two <laughs> comes out <laughs> and she's completely different character she's experienced an arc no longer is she wearing hot pink pants but she's wearing camouflage no longer is she dancing at the discotheque but she's cleaning her shotgun at night no longer does she got this round puffy hair face now she's got this ripped muscular face and i don't know what kind of hairdo that is but it's cooler whatever it is and she is now on a mission to save her son anyone looks at him cross-eyed she will blow you know hit her his head off or whatever she experiences this character arc, soft, screaming, running away girl to being macho superhero going to save the world girl. Got it? I see, I see you guys are excited about that film as I was. <laughs> Here's another one you might recognize. The Godfather, classic movie. I still, I have the soundtrack, I listen to it at night. 
It starts off with Mike, Michael Carleone is the main character of this trilogy of movies. And he begins, he wants nothing to do with his father's ultimate crime business. He does not want to be a part of the mafia. And so he goes off to the army and he becomes clean cut and he's, got a, he's a man of, of strength and integrity and he's not going to become his father. Before the end of the first film, he's already become his father. And in the second film, he becomes the mob boss. And he, goes, he undergoes a tremendous character arc. Many of them, actually. He goes from being clean cut to mafia boss to being worse than his father to going to, getting, you know, going to confession. He's doing all, he's, it's an amazing character arc in that story. Are you guys understanding the character arc now? People, I don't want to be redundant, but here's another example. Oh. <laughs> Lightning McQueen starts off as the arrogant rookie who's going to win the race, and he hates that his sponsor is Rusty's, a medicated bumper ointment for old hick Rusty cars. Next thing you know, he's got this character arc where he changes, and he's a humble servant serving his fellow car kind. And he's friends with a hick Rusty bumper truck named Toe Mater. Do you understand character arc? Well, if you read the Bible like a story, the Bible has character arcs too. If you read the gospel, for instance, like the gospel of John or the gospel of Luke, you'd meet the disciples and the disciples go through a complete character arc. For instance, if you look at this passage in Acts 4, I'll read it for you. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. So he's talking to the rulers of the people. He says, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed that we did to that crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let me just go ahead and tell you right now. To all the people of Israel, I'll tell you, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, now it gets all theological on him. This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. That's deep, heavy theological stuff. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now listen to the response of these leaders. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that Jesus, that these men had been with Jesus. So the disciples go through a character arc. When we first meet them, they're fishermen, common men. They're whining all the time. They're complaining all the time. They're fighting all the time. They're doing all the wrong things. When Jesus gets taken. They all run away and hide in the upper room for so many days. Peter denies Jesus three times to a girl. <laughs> they're just, they're scaredy cats. Then they have this character arc where they meet Jesus in some way and they become transformed and changed and filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. And now they're bold and they're telling these leaders, you killed the Messiah. It gets all theological, cornerstone, you know, all kinds of stuff. And these men are like, whoa, these are just common, uneducated men. How do they know all this stuff? And they noted they've been with Jesus. They had this cataclysmic event that changed them from going one way and being one way to now being bold and smart and filled with the Spirit. Now, I imagine every single one of you in this room have gone through a character arc, right? There was once a time in your life where you thought this way, you believed this way, you thought this way, and then things happened in your life and you changed and now you think this way and you do this thing and you go that way. One of those things could be becoming a Christian. You once were not a Christian, you once thought this way, once did that way, met Jesus, now you became a Christian, you do these things. I've known people who hated Christianity, hated God and thought that Christianity was foolishness, met Jesus, now they're preaching the gospel. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. 
You might have had many character arcs, right, in your life. You used to believe this. Not, I used to think that tithing meant giving 10%. Then I met Jesus and found out that it actually means giving till it hurts. I used to think that being a Christian meant going to church and doing a quiet time. Now I realize that what it means is going on mission and reaching people for Christ. You know, we all have these different character arcs. I, different events. College. College for me changed me. I was going one way. Then I started going a different way. I got married. <laughs> had children. <laughs> planted a church. I mean, these things are changing me. I hope it changes me for the better in the end, you know, but these things are changing us. I wonder what your character arc is. I want to talk about that a little bit today. I bet you have one. Well, that was a long intro, I know, but it was worth it because we're going to see Esther and her character arc today. So let's look together on Esther chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, you can look at the one on your table. It's on page 264. And while you're opening to that, I want to pray for us. Father in heaven, we come tonight to worship you, to praise your name, and we thank you for the opportunity that we had to do that tonight. Thank you for the beautiful music that we had to accompany our song to you. And Lord, we also come to humble ourselves before your written word. We want to read it. We want to study it. We want it to get inside of us. We want it to make it a part of who we are. And as we look at this girl named Esther... And as we look at the way you made events happen in her life, I ask, Lord, that you'll speak directly to us and give us insight into where we need to move. Maybe we need a character arc today. Maybe we need to move from where we were going and go somewhere different. And Lord, I pray that you will make us all sensitive to your leading on that this, this evening. I pray, Lord, your spirit will be in this place and quicken our hearts and our minds to understand your will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you ready to look together? I, it's too much text for me to put on the screen, so I'm just going to, we're going to read it together. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter into the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and its decree had reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them laying in sackcloth and in ashes. I'm going to stop there real quick and say this. It's probably appropriate for Mordecai to feel this way because this is all his fault, right? If he would have just saluted to the uniform, if he just would have bowed down and curtsied for this stupid Haman man, everything would have been fine. But instead he stands on this hill and saying, I'm not going to bow down to you. And now Haman wants to kill all the Jews. They all get the postcard. You're all going to die. So he runs out into the street and starts screaming and crying in sackcloth and ashes. And I want, want you to know this. This doesn't necessarily mean that Mordecai's all of a sudden found his religion. I, I, I think sometimes we want it to mean that. And maybe it does mean that. But it's not uncommon for all peoples in the Old Testament, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, to go stand in the street and weep and mourn and wear sackcloth and throw ashes on their face. We saw this, if you remember, when we studied Jonah. Those people were far from God. They didn't know who God was. But when Jonah came and spoke to them, they all ran out in the street, threw sackcloth, ashes on their face. So this isn't necessarily that Mordecai has come back to Jesus, if you will. <laughs> He's just mourning and weeping. And the whole city is mourning and weeping too. And there's this contrast that the author gives us. The last verse of chapter 3 contrasted with the first verse of chapter 4. The last verse of chapter 3 is Xerxes and Haman celebrating with a drink. The city's in confusion. The first verse of chapter 4, 
Mordecai weeping, all the Jews weeping. Some people are excited about this. Other people are confused by this. And some people are very sad about this. Let's keep moving. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came to told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Now the Bible's referring to her as the queen. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what it was and why it was that he was doing this. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree. So he gave him the postcard issued into Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And he commanded her, her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther just as Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hatchet and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, all of the king's servants and all the peoples and all the king's province know this. And that is, if any man or woman goes before the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one rule. And everyone knows this rule. That is, you will be put to death. Except for the one whom the king holds out his golden scepter so that he may make him live. But as for me... It's probably not going to happen because I've not been called to come into the king for these past 30 days. Huh. So there's this messenger thing happening. She goes, what's wrong, Pop? Why are you, why are you, why are you standing in the street? No clothes on. <laughs> he sends the message. And I'm assuming this Hathach guy probably by now knows that she's a Jew, right? She's been hidden. Her name means hidden. She's been hidden in the palace. He has to know, unless he's just clueless. He goes and says, tell Esther that this is what's happening, that the Jews are going to die. Here's the postcard and tell her that she needs to go talk to her husband and she needs to fix this. She needs to make this right. He tells her, she says, go tell him. Yeah, no, <laughs> not going to do that. Because here's why. Because there's this rule that everyone knows. Dad, you know this rule too. If I go before the king without being summoned, I will die. Unless he just so happens to be in a good mood and raise his golden scepter, say, don't kill her. But I'll be killed on the spot. And it's probably likely, it's probably likely that I will be killed on the spot because the king hasn't called for me in 30 days. Now, can you imagine being a new queen and have a husband who's your king and he hasn't called for you in 30 days? You're like, what am I doing here? I'm watching, you know, soap operas, <laughs> waiting for the king to call you. And the king's still playing the Persian bachelor, so he's still got all these other women every night. And the queen he hasn't seen in 30 days, she's thinking, the chances are slim for me. If I go before him now, he's going to think I'm mad. He's going to think, oh, no, I got a nagging wife and his killer. <laughs> so she says, no, thanks. What I think is interesting is this is the very first thing that we've heard Esther say. Did you know that? Did you catch that? She's not said anything this whole book. Four and a half chapters in, she finally speaks something. And the first thing she says is, yeah, no. <laughs> no, thanks. I'm not going to do that. You need to go fix this and save your people. No. So we're at this place in this character arc. So far, all that we've read about Esther, she's been a passive girl. She's done nothing. She's just done everything that everyone told her to do. Mordecai says, okay, you're going to go join the Persian bachelor. Don't tell him you're a Jew. Okay, dad, don't tell him I'm a Jew. She gets to the Persian bachelor. 
the eunuch, tells her everything. Tells her what to wear, tells her what to say, tells her how to act. And the Bible specifically says, and she did nothing except what the eunuch told her to do. So she's just being pushed along by the waves of circumstance. She doesn't have an opinion. Now, all of a sudden, she has an opinion. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do what you say. She's been doing what everyone says the whole time. Now she's like, no, I'm not going to do what you say. She's beginning to develop her, you see, you're starting to feel her round out a little bit, you know? Figuratively speaking. Huh, well, let's see what happens. Verse, where are we? Verse 12. And so they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Okay, this makes sense so far, right? Listen, Esther, you're a Jew. If all the Jews are going to die, don't think you're not going to die. Makes sense. Don't, it doesn't take a smart person to think, to make sense of this, right? Julie, you're a smart person, but you, but you know what it means. But it's going to get confusing, so let me just confuse you a little bit. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Well, what does that mean? He's saying, if you don't do this, then we're going to be saved. Relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. He doesn't say from God, because remember, there's no mention of God in this book. He just says, from some other place, we'll be saved. That's interesting. How does he know that? And then he says, but you are going to die. <laughs> so commentators spill a lot of ink over what's happening here. Is this a threat or is this a prophecy? What's happening? I, I kind of think it's a threat, to be honest. And I'll tell you why. Charles, if I called you this week and said, yo, you owe me $1,000, if you said, well, I'm not going to pay you $1,000, and I said, well, you're going to die, <laughs> would you think that's a threat? Yeah. yeah, you would. Or would you think it's a prophecy? Oh, he knows something I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Charles already knows that. <laughs> <laughs> you would think I was saying, because you didn't pay me, I'm going to kill you. One commentator that I read actually thinks this. He thinks Mordecai is saying, look, chick, you got two choices. You take it up with Xerxes or you take it up with me. If you go to Xerxes, you've got a 50-50 chance. He's either going to kill you or he's going to let you go. But if you don't go to Xerxes, that means you've chosen to take it up with me and you're going to die. Because I'm not going to let no girl of mine sit in the palace, getting fat and happy, and not taking care of her people. <laughs> now, whether that's really happening or not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's really happening, but it makes sense. Even if it doesn't happen, he is still kind of threatening if it's a prophecy. Look, if you don't do it, then he doesn't say God, but we're going to be saved. And I kind of wonder how he knows that. Does this mean that he's a man of faith, even though he doesn't talk about God, even though he didn't go to Jerusalem when he's supposed to, even though he's living in the capital of Persia and he's hiding with the name of Mordecai, which is after the God of war, Mordoc? He's not, he's not been obeying God at all. All of a sudden now he trusts God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. God will save us. If he thinks God is going to save us, why is he standing in the street screaming and crying in the sackcloth? You know, I just don't get Have you ever thought this through? This is, the, this is the debate of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If you believe that God's going to take care of you, then why are you standing in the street crying? 
God, please take care of me. You already know he's going to take care of you. If, you, if everything is predetermined by the Lord, then why should we even pray at all? <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever wrestled with those thoughts, because I wrestle with them all the time. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to answer those questions tonight, <laughs> but I will say this. Again, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of prayer. He just says we're going to be saved. And even if we are, you're going to die. So it may be a threat. It may be a prophecy, but it is also a threat weaved into the prophecy. And so in some way, he's sort of pushing her, backs her into a corner. Look, you better do it or else. What I think is interesting is that Esther is going through this character arc. She's passive. Now all of a sudden she stands on her own. She says, you know what? I'm a queen. I don't have to listen to you. I'm not going to do it. Okay, if you don't do it, you're going to die. Think about this. you got two choices. Do it or don't do it. Either which way, death is going to come. And then he says this. This is a famous, famous verse. Verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So here's this divine sovereignty thing again. This is, the, this is the famous line of the whole book, right? I mean, it becomes the subtitle of the story. Esther for such a time as this. I mean, I grew up going to kids' camps, you know. Esther, for such a time as this. I think it's the, the subtitle of the VeggieTales show. It's the, for such a time as this. <laughs> Which basically just means carpe diem. Seize the moment. Seize the day. You've got a destiny. Take it. It's yours. Take it, right? And again, we have this kind of divine sovereignty here. Who knows? Maybe God has orchestrated all these events so that at this moment, you'll be the queen. Okay, so if it's divine sovereignty and God's put them here, if it just so happens that God put them in Susas, if it just so happens that God made her with a figure, if it just so happens that she got elected to be a part of the Bachelor Persa, by the way, it also just so happens that Queen Vashti said no. So now there's a hole there. If it just so happens that she's there, if it just so happens that Mordecai overheard, you know, that there was going to be an attack on, just so, all these things just so happen. And God is, if God's the one lining all these out, it seems kind of ungodly, don't you think? These people are living in rebellion against God. They're supposed to be back in Jerusalem. Isaiah told them to go home, but they want to live in Susa, where the money is, where the affluence is. And if God is the one working all these things out, then you, you kind of ask, it's kind of ungodly. Why would God work out circumstances for his will by sending a young virgin into a king's room when he's already had 900 and something of them? It doesn't sound like God to me. So this is where this human responsibility plays in. The point is, is that God is at work, even though we mess it all up. <laughs> and so we... So, Mordecai has to take responsibility. This is his fault. If he was back in Jerusalem, he wouldn't have ticked off Haman and Haman wouldn't have sent an edict out to kill all the Jews. Esther didn't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I could go on and on and on about this. I've done this before, right? When I was in college, I wrote on a whole wall, the whole history of the universe. And I was trying to figure out what God did and what God didn't do. <laughs> I'm just kidding, not the whole history of the universe, but you've ever done this before? What is God responsible for and what am I responsible for? One commentator said this, our sovereign God will accomplish all his objectives with or without us. He's got a plan. I believe that God has a plan. And whether or not we're going to obey and do what he says, he's just like, okay, Mike, you don't want to do it? I'll get someone else. And I think that's kind of what Mordecai's saying here. If you don't do it, some other place will save us, but you're going to get yours. <laughs> he calls us not out of his need for us, I like this, but for our need to find fulfillment in serving him. 
How many of you can agree to that? When God calls you to do something, how many of you would agree that you've resisted? And your first response is, yeah, no. (laughs) Just like Esther's. You know what's going to happen if I do that? I'm going to hate my life. That's what's going to happen. I'm not even going to have a life. And then God seems to somehow push us. Okay, well, you know, Esther needed to be pushed. I needed to be pushed out of my cushy job as a youth pastor, you know, where I was making millions so that I could become and plant a church. (laughs) Maybe God's pushing you. Million pennies. (laughs) When God was pushing you, maybe, out of your comfort zone, and you're saying, yeah, no, but he's going to back you into a corner where eventually you say, okay, fine, I've had enough. This is what typically happens to people. We might call it the end of our rope or this aha moment where you're doing your devotions or whatever you want to call them, and you read them, and all of a sudden the Lord says, boom, you've not been doing this. Yeah, you're right, God. I told you that last week, actually, and you didn't hear me, so I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Or maybe God's telling you, you need to stop doing this. I've been telling you to stop doing that. You're hurting only yourself, and you're hurting me in the process. Listen to what some other commentator said. The book implies that even when God's people are far from him, I like this a lot, and disobedient from him, they're still the object of his current concern and love, and he's working out his purposes through them. It doesn't matter that you're running from God. It doesn't matter that you're disobedient from God to God. It doesn't matter that you're just like Peter and you're always screwing things up. God says, I'm going to build my church on you. Peter. It's, it's amazing to me. That's why the subtitle of this series is God's perfect work through imperfect people. We're in, I'm imperfect. Esther's imperfect. Mordecai's very imperfect. Xerxes is very imperfect, but God's going to be working his plan through all of them in this story. He's working his plan through you. You don't have to be, you know, uh, Charles Spurgeon to share the gospel. You can be messed up H.J., right? H.J.'s messed up, and he's got a lot of friends who are messed up, and he can share the gospel. He said I could say that today, I, th- I think. He gave me permission with his eyes. Two okay, two more. All right. <laughs> so here's what I want to talk about tonight, real quick, in our discussion question. And that is this. And who knows whether you have not come to Lake St. Louis for such a time as this. And I put Lake St. Louis there because that's where I live. But you might live in Winsville or you might live in Dardine Prairie. Or you know, might not even have to put where you live. Might just put your workplace. Who knows? Maybe you came to MasterCard for such a time as this. Or maybe you go to school. Maybe you go to this school, Lindenwood, for such a time as this. What is it that you believe the Lord has put you here for? Because if God is working in all of our circumstances, even though we're messing them all up, he's got you here for a reason, I think. So maybe while you're sharing this for three minutes, you can also share a little bit about your character arc and why you believe you are where you are today. Can you do that in three minutes? Probably not, no. Verse 15, last few verses here. Then Esther told them to reply back to Mordecai. (laughs) Go back and tell them this. He he threatened her life, right? If you don't do this, you're going to (laughs) die. Then Esther told him, why I never, (laughs) I'm just kidding. What she said was this, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days. How many days? Three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you fast. And then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. I'm just going to remind you, it's against the law. But if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. And this is now where we see Esther round out as a character. She was passive. 
She did everything everyone told her to do. She takes a stand and says, no, I don't want to do that. She gets backed into a corner. Are you sure? Are you sure? Come on. This is what you're destined for. Think about it. Why else would you, a Jew, become the queen of Persia? Okay, fine. If I'm going to do this, I need you to do some things for me. I want you to gather all the Jews, come together, and fast for three days. Incidentally, do you remember this started on the day of Passover? Three days from the day of Passover. It's just like Christ. Christ celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and then he was dead and three days in the tomb before he could save us. The parallels are beautiful. She says, I want you to gather these people, pray. She doesn't say pray. I have to be careful. Still hasn't said prayer. There's still no God in this book. Fast. Fast for me. I'll fast too. Then I'll go to the king. And if I die, then so be it. I'll die. And do you see how she's rounded out as a character? She's like Sarah Connor. She was just doing everything that she, you know, what everyone told her to do, run. And then now she's like, no, I'm going to fight. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to stick my neck out there. I'll risk my life for my people. I think she was pushed, obviously. But then she didn't just reluctantly said, okay, fine, I'll do it. She said, you know what? You're right. And if I perish, I perish. I would rather die trying than die not trying. They may take our lives, but they'll never take, you know, what what would you give up from this day to that to come back to this place? I'm quoting a brave man with a brave heart. For those of you who don't know, that's the best movie in the world. I should have used that as a character development. One of my favorite quotes from William Shakespeare is, never be afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrusted upon them. This also was made famous by a famous movie called The Night of the Museum. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. Not a phenomenal movie, really, but it's got Ben Stiller in it, and he's, his character is that he's always screwing things up. He's always making a bunch of mistakes. He, ne- he can't make his son happy, can't make his wife happy, gets a job as a museum dude, and at night, all the museum things come to life. And one of them is Teddy Roosevelt, and Teddy Roosevelt says this quote to him. Some men are born great. Some men achieve greatness. Other men have it thrusted on them. And from that moment on, Ben Stiller, all of a sudden, I forget what he does, but he does something amazing. Esther has greatness thrusted upon her. She's standing here. What am I going to do? I really don't have a choice. This is what I have to do. But because she steps out to do it, greatness is now thrusted upon her and she's walking in her destiny. For a Jewish reader, if you were reading what Esther said, you would have immediately thought of something. I bet you, you didn't think of it, did you? When Esther said this, did you think of another Bible verse in the Bible? I'll show it to you. It's in Joel chapter 2. Very famous verse. All the Jews know this. When, when she said that, every, Mordecai probably knew what she was talking about. All the Jews in Susa would have known what she was talking about. She's, she, and I'll just read some of Joel 2 for you now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. And if you read the rest of Joel 2, it actually says, gather all the people into the city. The women, the children, the dogs, the cats, the animals, gather them all. Put sackcloth on them, fast, and call out to God, and because he is going to save us. And he's, he's quick to forgive and quick to give us mercy and grace. Esther saying, I'm going to do this, but I want you to gather everyone and rend your hearts and call out to God. She never says God. Mordecai never says God. They never say pray. But you know what? Joel didn't either. Just says, rend your hearts. 
fast, weep, and God will protect you. God will give you grace. Maybe today you're in a place where God is pushing you through your character arc. Maybe he's been telling you this for a long time and you've been saying, yeah, no, like Esther, but God's pushing you. And my encouragement to you would be the encouragement of Joel. Hey, don't be afraid. Never be afraid of greatness. <laughs> it might be thrusted on you now, but you know what? God is going to forgive you. God is quick to forgive. He's slow to anger. Maybe God's been telling you, hey, you need to stop doing this. You've been struggling with this for too long. Today might be the day we say, you know what? I'm going to stop being a flat character and make the same bad choices I've always made. I'm going to start being a more round character, and I'm going to listen to God and, be, and let greatness be thrusted upon me. Maybe if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, tonight might be the night that Jesus is saying, come to me. Rend your hearts. Confess to me. Don't you worry. I'll forgive you. Just come. And can you imagine the life change that you'll have, the character arc that you'll have? You once were a sinner without Jesus. Now you met Jesus. Now you become filled with the Holy Spirit and you walk in a different way. It's amazing. Well, that leads me to my conclusion. Jesus is a better mediator. Amen? Amen. And this story is really all about Jesus. Jesus is the better mediator. And right now, Esther is playing a Christ-like part. She's a type of Christ because she's standing in the gap as a mediator. Esther has two identities, Chadesa, which is Hebrew for righteous one, and Esther, which is Persian for hidden. And she is the righteous chosen one of God, hidden in the castle as queen in a royal position to the king. And the Jews have a problem. King Xerxes is high and exalted and lifted up on a throne, and no one can approach him without dying. You approach me, you die. And the Jews are down here in sackcloth and ashes, and they're going to die. There's a death sentence on their life, and they need someone on the inside because they can't go to God. They can't go to the Persian God. They need someone on the inside to speak for them, to defend them, and Esther, for such a time as this, happens to be there. She's got two identities, Hebrew, Persian, she is going to stand in the gap and mediate for the two of them. And just like that, you and I have a problem too. God is way up, up there. He's separated. He's holy and we're so not. And we cannot approach him. There's no way to approach him. Men in the Bible have attempted to approach him and he struck them down. We cannot approach God. We're down here in our sinfulness. And just like Mordecai, we refuse to bow down to God. We refuse to give him respect, to give him glory, to give him praise, to give him worship, to give him honor. We want the glory and the praise and the honor to ourselves. So because of that, there's a death sentence on our life, and we need a mediator. We need someone on the inside who has access to the throne, who can speak to us and defend for us. Jesus is that mediator. And incidentally, Jesus has two identities. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Just like Esther, he is in the royal throne and, he's, and he humbles himself and stoops to become a man on this planet and he mediates for us. But unlike Esther, Esther is willing to risk her life so that we will be saved. Jesus actually gives his life, amen, so that we can be saved. And when he gives his life, he dies and pays for your sin, pays for my sin, and is the ultimate mediator. Say, God, you don't have to have a descendants on these anymore because I done paid it. That's good news. And tonight, Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen? He's alive. And he's sitting on a throne. And we are just like Esther going to walk to that throne right now. Would you do it with me? 
we are going to go to that throne, and unlike Esther, we're not going to be afraid that the king is going to kill us because we know that he's full of mercy and abounding in grace and steadfast love. And we're going to approach the throne as we sing and as we worship, as we give of our tithes and our offerings, as we take communion, we're going to approach the throne of God together tonight. Would you pray with me? Maybe even stand. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holiness, for who you are, that you are a good God, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are merciful, that you are slow to anger, and that you are abounding in steadfast, hesed love. We are, we are blessed beyond imagination. And we thank you, Lord, that you've, cha you've changed me, and I know you've changed a lot of us here, that our characters have arced, <laughs> that we were once lost, but now we're found. We were once blind, but now we see. And you've done that in our lives, and we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you worship. Lord, we want to give you our hearts. We want to give you our lives. We want to give you our time. We want to give you our finances. We want to give everything that we can to you because you deserve it all and because you've given us all. And so I pray, Lord, that for such a time as this, maybe you have us here, I believe you do, to make an impact on this new city called O'Fallon slash Lake St. Louis slash Winsville slash Darden Prairie. There are so many people moving into this city. 83% of them have no church home. And Lord, we're a young church plant who's eager to grow, but more importantly, we're eager to share the gospel with people who do not know Jesus, people who are going one way and need a radical transformation in their life to be going a different way. And so I pray, Lord, that you will receive our honor, receive our worship, receive our praise to you now, but then that you would move us and shake us, push us, if you need to push us, so that we will become the people that we were destined to become and share the gospel with those in our worlds, in our spheres of influence, for your holy and gracious name. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.